You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Well, it is the July 4th weekend where we celebrate the American independence. That's 246 years ago, if my math is correct. And there's no question that the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, has is a well-known document with great impact around the world. One of the most transformative and influential statements in human history, really, about the rights of human beings and where they come from. And, uh, and we should be grateful for that. And we are, that, uh, that those are some of the governing constitutional formative documents of our nation and community that we have here together. Uh, So even the impact of great words such as, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We recognize those from the Declaration of Independence. The preamble of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide the common defense, and promote the general welfare and security of the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. But these words pale in comparison to the impact of the Lord's Prayer. Those statements have made a huge influence on our lives. Um, The Constitution, the Declaration of Independence have, have shaped so much of the world that we've lived in, but nothing compares to the power of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, we are going to call our the next two Sundays the prayer that changed the world. Uh, These words given by Jesus are, in a sense, a bit of a constitution, a declaration of dependence on God. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve declared independence from God, and it created a war with God, where sinners are now at odds with God. And now, through this prayer, we have some articulation of what it looks like to be rightly related to God, for those cessation of hostilities to be brought and put away and brought into a place of freedom, not through independence, but through dependence on our Father. And so we have these words that change the world, the prayer that changed the world, because it tells us so much about what this kingdom of God is like. So just think, those words that we recited from some of the founding documents of our country pale in comparison to these words right here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So while our country celebrates a freedom that comes from independence, this kingdom, the kingdom citizen, celebrates the freedom that comes from knowing that God is your Father and through dependence on Him, a declaration of dependence on God and the freedom that comes with that. So let's pray as we open up God's Word. Oh God, on this weekend where so many things are oriented around the independence of our nation, and we thank God for that and the freedoms and ideals that we espouse, we don't live up to them all the time, uh, but they pale in comparison and ought to pale in priority in our hearts to our dependence on You and the freedom that comes from knowing God as Father. And so Lord, I pray that You would help us today to fix our eyes not on worldly things but on heavenly things and see that we are invited by Jesus to know God as Father, to enter a kingdom that is from heaven and to be transformed into a totally different kind of citizen 
something that transcends American citizenship or any earthly citizenship, but a citizenship in heaven under King Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would blow our minds, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would stir our affections for you in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context of this prayer is that we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has come, and he has come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. You see that early on in the book of Matthew, the genealogies, the prophecies in those first four chapters, that Jesus checks all the boxes. He is the Messiah. He's the one that's been promised. He's the one that the Old Testament scriptures point to. And then he comes and he begins to proclaim a message called repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he is bringing a kingdom into the world he's authorized to do that to bring the heavenly kingdom to earth and now he's calling people to leave their lives to repent of their sins and their autonomy their independence and come into his kingdom to immigrate into his kingdom and as he's preached this message throughout northern galilee a big crowd is starting to follow him and as they follow him he goes up on a mountain and begins to teach them and he gives them this sermon on the mount where he basically unpacks what the values of his kingdom is. It's it's almost like a constitution of the kingdom. What is the terms of agreement? How do you enter? How do you be a part of this kingdom? Where is Jesus taking this thing? And so we have this sermon starting with the Beatitudes. What is is it that God blesses? What, what, What is the blessing or the congratulations, as we put it, of those who enter into his kingdom and are marked by these qualities of being poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and all of the things are listed there. Then we see that the purpose of the kingdom is to be salt and light in the world, to be distinct from every other, every other kingdom. Uh, kingdom citizens are different than other citizens, and they're meant to not withdraw from the world, but to go into the world and to be a transforming influence on the world, to preserve from decay, to bring light to the world. And so the kingdom citizen is distinct from the kingdoms of this world. And then Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, And that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion, to bring it to its beautiful expression. And then he calls those who are following him to renounce pretend righteousness, a righteousness that's only on the surface and doesn't get to the heart. He goes from, don't just be content with not murdering, deal with your anger. Don't just be content with not committing adultery, deal with lust in the heart. He goes down all of these things, eventually leading to the point of going, you're called to not just love your neighbor, but love your enemy and pray for them. And we're called to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, which means that we need a righteousness that we can't achieve because we all fail. So we need a righteousness given to us that's perfect, that's greater than the Pharisees. And then last week we talked about performative righteousness. So when you do, uh, when you do righteous, um, when you do pietistic, when you do religious, that's the word I'm looking for, when you do religious things for God, like fasting and praying and giving, You're to do it from the heart, not for show. Don't be performative. So reject pretend righteousness. Reject performative righteousness. And be genuine from the heart before God and with other people. A righteousness that's different, that transforms you, that's not like the scribes and Pharisees. Well, in the middle of our section last week, as he's talking about performative righteousness, he then pauses and breaks the pattern. He's got this threefold pattern that he breaks when he talks about prayer. And he shifts. He shifts into a little bit different uh, teaching on prayer. It's an extension of prayer, but he breaks his pattern and then returns to it in fasting. And so these 7 through 15, we wanted to take a little bit of time to look at it this week and next week. Um, And he moves from talking about just the individual, not just your individual giving. He's been talking about that, your individual praying, your individual fasting. He switches to the plural pronoun y'all, if you're from the South, y'all. When I did my Greek homework, we don't, have, we don't have a distinction in English between singular you 
and plural you. We just say you. So then when it's translated into English in our Bibles, we miss that. The times when it's talking about you singularly and you plurally, y'all. So we always had in Greek class had to translate the plural you as y'all. So all of our Bible translation work had kind of a southern feel to it of y'all. But that's, that's the idea in verses 7 through 15. It's moved from the singular to the plural. It's y'all. When y'all pray. And then you see through the Lord's prayer, you see us, right? You don't see any I. You don't see any me. You see our Father. You see give us. And so I think Jesus is doing something distinct because then when he moves to fasting in verse 16, he goes back to the singular. So I think this is meant to highlight here that Jesus is wanting to give us something, some special teaching on prayer because prayer is so critical and so important. When Jesus' apostles came to him, they, and Luke records this, they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus never taught his apostles how to preach that we know of. He never taught them how to do miracles or ministry. They asked, when they could ask one question, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them to pray in a very specific way. Christians pray. We are marked by prayer. We love prayer. You can't lead a people spiritually that don't pray like we pray. And not just individually, but together. And this is a call to pray together. The plural you, our, us, y'all. Not just you and God, but corporate, communal, together. You can and should pray in private, but you must not only pray in private. We are to gather to pray as Christians. The radical nature of this prayer has and does change the world. This prayer has been so formative to Christians, and it really has changed the world. So Jesus actually teaches us, I've got four points for us, a better way to pray. Jesus teaches us a better way to pray. First, he teaches us a better how to pray, and then a better why to pray, a better what to pray, and then a better result from prayer. Okay, so I just want to walk you through those in our time together. Let's look at a better how. Verses 6 and 7. Sorry, 7 and 8. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. The better how, the better how is this. You can pray with brevity and sincerity, both privately and corporately. That's the better how. And here, let me just, let me just show it to you in the Scripture. Look at verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. So what marks the pagans, the Gentiles, the people who don't know God from other religions is that they feel like they have to pile on a lot of words. It's all about the statistics. How long have you prayed? How many phrases have you prayed? How many times have you repeated the words over and over? And Jesus is like, that is not how I want you to pray. I am giving you a better how, which is with brevity. And with sincerity, you can come before your Father and you don't need a bunch of flowery things. You don't need all the stats. Don't be like that because Christians don't believe in a God like that. The Gentiles believe in a God that you have to badger and you have to put enough quarters in the vending machine to then get what you want. Right? That's their view of God, is that God is like a vending machine and, you gotta, and He's begrudging, so you've got to wear Him down. And the, the call here is that you do not have to be like that. You don't have to pray that way. You have a Father who is inclined to hear you, and so you don't have to have long, empty prayers. So this means that we can avoid things like ecstatic speech, things like even some types of contemplative prayer. 
recitations, incantations, a yoga-like emptying of the mind. No, this is, a, this is not empty phrasing. This is not empty thinking. We don't need dream catchers or prayer ties. We don't need any of those things to help us. We don't need labyrinths or prayer circles or prayer beads. We don't need Hail Marys. We don't need mindless, even ironically, repetition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Mindlessly repeating the Lord. That's the irony is that so many people get just used to mindlessly repeating the Lord's Prayer and doing the very thing that Jesus told them not to. Empty phrases, no thought, sincerity, and you don't need anything to help you pray, right? You don't need any helps in your prayer in that regard because of what your father is like. None of that makes your prayer better or more effective. That if you do certain things or go certain places or juggle the right things or say the right words, you don't have to do that. How freeing is this? I think Jesus means for us to be free. When we come to this, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes we talk about prayer and all of us feel guilty because none of us pray as much as we should, right? Prayer feels like a burden. And I want you to just feel free today. Not that you have to pray, although that's kind of true, but that you get to pray. That's what Jesus, I think, is, is, is putting in front of us, is you get to pray. Your Father needs no impressing. He needs no informing because He knows what you need. You don't have to impress Him. You don't have to inform Him. He already need, knows what you need before you ask. What freedom, right? And what that does in the human heart is that our temptation would be, well, if He already knows it, then why pray? And, and Jesus actually thinks it's the opposite. Well, since He already knows it, you might as well pray it, right? It's actually in the kingdom citizen's heart, it works exactly counterintuitively the opposite way. The Father needs no impressing, needs no informing. He is not hard of hearing and He is not hard-hearted towards you. He needs no badgering. He is a Father. Interestingly, this idea of Father only happens, that word only comes up describing God 14 times in the Old Testament and always corporately for Israel. People would not call God Father. Like you just wouldn't think of it that way. That's too intimate. That's too, that's bringing God down too low. And what you see Jesus throughout the Gospels is calling God his Father. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it 16 times, and he's referring to you, that you can call God Father. Some have described the difference that Jesus brings, the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that in the New Testament, you can approach God as a Father. That was not super clear in the Old Testament. Yes, he's the Father of Israel, but to go, my Father, is something that is brought to expression and invited into by Jesus. There's something just really distinct about that. God referred to as Father is referred more times in this sermon than all of the Old Testament combined, and now we get to come into His presence as like He's my personal Father, Heavenly Father. So Jesus reveals this way to relate to God that we just have never seen expressed this way. And Jesus is saying, your Father knows what you need, so you don't have to come up with long prayers, and you don't need any of these other things for God to hear you. So friends, brothers and sisters, you're free to just pray. You can just pray. You don't need any of that other stuff. It doesn't depend on you at all. That's what's communicated here, right? Don't pray like these people who don't know God, who have a faulty view of God. You can pray because of what God's like, not because of what you're like. That's a better how with brevity and sincerity. Think of the freedom and confidence and fearlessness and contentment that could bring if you were just free to pray without having to perform or help your prayers in any way. There's a better why also in these verses. The better why is, that be, is because your Father is all-knowing and all-powerful. 
Look at, let me read 7 and 8 again. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. That's their why. Why do they pray? And why do they pray like this? Because they think that if they stack up enough credit with God through prayer, then they'll get what they're asked. And Jesus is like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to work up any credits with God. You're his child. You belong to him. You get to inherit all that he has. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to peel his fingers off of things. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. They think that they can get God to hear them. And it's almost like they have this formula. Effective prayer is this. Time plus words equals effective prayer. But in this new why, we have this sort of formula. God's fatherly heart plus God's all-knowing plus God's power. I'm doing this the wrong way. For you, it should go this way, right? It should go this way. God's fatherly heart plus God's infinite knowledge plus God's infinite power plus your short, sincere request equals effective prayer. How much of that is about God? All of it. And then you get to offer a simple request and your father who has this kind of heart, this kind of knowledge, this kind of power, hears your prayer and then boom, effective prayer, right? It's not based on you at all. It's based on what he is like. That's the formula. Not time plus words equals effective prayer, but God's heart plus God's knowledge plus God's power and your short, sincere request equals effective prayer. So, why pray? Because your Father is so great and so inviting. He is glorified in hearing your prayers and answering them according to his will. Let me give you an Old Testament example. 1 Kings Chapter 18, verses 26 through 39. I don't have it on the screen. You'll just have to listen, or you can flip there if you want. 1 Kings 18, 26 through 39. This is a good 850 years or so prior to Jesus. This is in the Old Testament. And the northern kingdom of Israel is under the evil rule of Ahab and Jezebel. And there has been a drought. And Ahab is blaming Elijah, God's prophet, for the reason that there's no water, there's no rain, there's famine, people are starving. And so there's this showdown between Elijah and the, I think it's 400 or 450 prophets of Baal. I forget which number it is. But they have a contest and all of Israel is the audience watching. Okay, who's the real God, Baal or Yahweh? Who's the real God here? And so we'll both build, that's right. They both will build an altar. They'll both pray to their deity and whichever deity sends fire, that's the real deity. So they have this wager, who's the real God? And just watch this. Watch the difference between the Gentiles and how they pray and the people of God and how they pray. 1 Kings 18, 26-39, so this is 14 verses, but the story's fascinating, so it should be interesting. They took the bull, this is the prophets of Baal, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried out aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They had to help their prayers. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, and there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. People hadn't been worshiping and sacrificing to God for decades, perhaps. So he repairs the altar. And with the stones, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Elijah took the 12 stones according to the number of their tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now listen to his prayer compared to the prayers of the prophets of Baal. Here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. End of prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And then all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See the difference between their gods? One, you have to work up. You have to persuade Baal to act and Baal doesn't act because he's not real. But the God who is real can just simple appeal from his child and Boom, fireball, burns up everything, right? It's all about God, not the prayer. So there's a better how. It can be brief and sincere, like this prayer. The why, because your Father is so great. He knows what you need. He's all-powerful. And He loves you. You look at the Lord's Prayer that He's going to teach us in just a few minutes. It's only 52 words in English. And I timed myself yesterday. It takes 14.88 seconds to pray. Just timed it, all right? If you can do it faster, then this model prayer that changes the world is not long, but it's profound because of who it's appealing to. It's not what's in the prayer so much as it is the one being prayed to. That's where the power of effective prayer is. So a better how, a better why, and a better what. We're going to look at this more next week, but let me just give you a brief snapshot because now he says pray like this, and he gives us the what of prayer. What is it that you should be praying What are the kinds of things you should be praying? And here's what we have. The better what of prayer is that we should pray for God's glory first. For God's glory first. And then for our good second, our needs. His good first, and then our, or His glory first, and then our good second. Notice this in verse 9. Pray then like this. And Jesus is giving a model. This isn't meant to be recited. He just talked about that in the previous verse. Like, don't just do blind, mindless repetition. But let me give you an example, a model, the themes that you should be praying for. These are the things that you should be focusing on. He begins with an invocation. Our Father who art in heaven, right? You're addressing it to God. You're focusing it to Godward. You're talking as if God can hear you. Our Father in heaven. And notice that in this invocation, this Our Father in heaven, that we're acknowledging His relational nearness, our Father. He's near, He's close, and we have this kind of relationship with Him. And yet His infinite bigness at the same time in heaven. We're acknowledging who He is, that He is both near, relationally near, and cosmically big, right? He's huge. His infinite bigness, His relational nearness. 
This prayer can be prayed individually, but there's nothing individualistic in the prayer at all. In fact, the very first word is what? Our. You're always thinking communally when you're coming to God. You're not saved alone. You're saved together with other people. God above all things and communal in all things. When we see in heaven, when we're all gathered around the throne, it's a crowd, right? It's people. Not just individuals, but people. So we can come to Him and say, my Father in heaven, but that's not how the prayer is given, our. We're to see it as a together thing. And then we have six petitions. After this invocation, we have six petitions. And He's given us categories, themes, priorities, okay? He's given us uh, the, the, the substance that we can then unpack in all kinds of different ways, a million different ways to pray, a billion different ways to pray these priorities. But let He just gives us a brief outline of the things we ought to prioritize, the categories that we should be praying. The first three categories prioritize God's glory. Hallowed be your name. May your name be revered. May you be known as Father, which presumes that there's a preaching of the gospel around the world. May everywhere where people don't know your name, hear your name, hear your character, know your goodness, and love it. Worship it. Hallow it. Right? Your kingdom come. We want your rule and reign in the world. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't think that comma should be there. I think it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The way that you're obeyed in heaven, like the angels obey God immediately and with joy. May that be, may earth be like that. May people be like that. We see this progression that wherever God's name is hallowed, well, there his kingdom is. And wherever his kingdom is, his will is done, right? And so that's the prayer of the kingdom citizen. Prioritize this Father who is hallowed, that there's a kingdom that will come, that God's kingdom comes, His will is obeyed and enjoyed. And then the second three are the resulting requests for our concerns and needs, because God does care about those things. They are real needs. So we have these three second petitions. Give us this day our daily bread, which means we, have phys- we need physical provision. We have physical needs. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We need spiritual pardon. We need physical provision. We need spiritual pardon. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need holistic protection, spiritually and physically, from temptation and evil. We'll talk more about that next week. But we get the better what, right? Pray for God's glory. Pray for the good of your brothers and sisters together, for the needs that we have. And all of this presumes dependence, right? What is the one thing that we're supposed to do? Forgive. God does it all, right? Even that forgiveness is empowered by His forgiveness. But when you look at the prayer, it's all about what God can do and what God will do. We don't bring the kingdom. He brings the kingdom, right? The only thing that, is, that we're responsible to is forgive as He's forgiven us, which then brings us to a better result, which is verses 14 and 15. Transformation in me, in us, and the whole world. Look at verses 14 and 15, the result of this prayer. He says... Well, let me just read it. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, when I was like a study in this, I was kind of like, well, wait a minute. That's sort of a weird thing for Jesus to say, right? Because it's almost like, did he forget? Like he already talked about forgiveness like in the prayer. Did he forget to say something and now has to say it later? Um... What, what is he going for here? Why does he go back to forgiveness? And I, think, I don't think that he's forgetting because he resumes the pattern in just a few verses later. I, don't think that this is, I think this is meant to be connected in there as a better result from our prayers. 
The word for, I think, is, is indicating the result of how, why, and what. It's not the only result of prayer, but it is a primary, maybe the first fruits of praying with this kind of heart, praying with this kind of how, why, and what, is that forgiveness then begins to be permeate everything, right? The forgiveness that comes from you because of what the forgiveness God has given to you. It seems that Jesus expects this to be the first fruits of prayer. Not the only result, but a defining mark is forgiveness. I don't think this is to say that if you find forgiveness difficult that you're not a Christian, but if you have given up on forgiveness entirely, then it's not God's kingdom that you want because God's kingdom is all about forgiveness. You think about this, what's wrong with the world? Sin, right? Sin is what has broken everything. Well, how does God deal with sin? Forgiveness through atonement. He sent His Son, we don't have it in this passage, but we have it in, as you expand out, that God extends His forgiveness through atonement. God is dealing with the sin problem that broke everything, that broke our relationship with God, that orphaned us from our Father, that caused evil to come into the world. It's what's resisting His kingdom. It's what's resisting His will. It's what's causing us not to hallow His name. And so the solution, the answer to all of this prayer is to deal with sin. What is God's mechanism for dealing with sin? Forgiveness. He came and lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay for sins and rose again so that we might have forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins makes us forgivers. So we, we can't genuinely pray for God's kingdom to come and hold unforgiveness in our hearts, right? We've all sinned and been sinned against, and forgiveness through the atonement of Jesus Christ deals with that sin, both the sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you. And so there's this call for forgiveness, this call for forgiveness. If you're going to pray like this, you're going to love forgiveness. You're going to love forgiveness. Withholding forgiveness rejects God as Father. It does not hallow His name. Withholding forgiveness resists the coming kingdom because His kingdom is all about forgiveness of sins. Withholding forgiveness defies God's will. So to pray that God's will be done and then withhold forgiveness is to show that you misunderstand what God's will is. Withholding forgiveness is a mark of of, of a fallen earth, not a perfect heaven. Withholding forgiveness makes God sustaining you another day kind of a waste, right? Give me my daily bread so I can hold on to more grudges, right? No, give me my daily bread that I might be an agent of your kingdom, that I might be a witness to your glory, that I might be a forgiver. Withhold, withholding forgiveness shows that you've not been forgiven by God yourself. Withholding forgiveness is, under the domina is to be under the domination of temptation and evil. So deliver us from evil, and then to hang on to forgiveness is to live in a whole world of evil, vengeance and anger. We talked about that in the previous chapter. But pursuing forgiveness shows that God is your Father. Pursuing forgiveness in His name hallows Him. Pursuing forgiveness demonstrates the advance of God's kingdom in your heart. And other people get an experience of what God's forgiveness is like because they've experienced forgiveness from you, right? Pursuing forgiveness is doing God's will. Pursuing forgiveness... Gives God a logical reason to prolong your life, right? Because you're working for His kingdom. You're giving people a taste of what they can receive in Christ. All of that sin and shame and difficulty can be put on Christ. And therefore, you're free to forgive. You're free to forgive. 
In fact, to pray for these things is to love forgiveness. Pursuing forgiveness demonstrates the level of forgiveness that you've received. Pursuing forgiveness eliminates massive amounts of temptation and keeps you from evil. So, we might say that John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer because Jesus really can't honestly pray this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus can't pray that for Jesus never sinned, right? So this prayer is in many ways, John 17 is really the prayer that Jesus offers. This is a prayer for sinners. This is a sinner's prayer that Jesus is giving. He's giving us a model prayer for sinners who want to leave their life of sin and enter into his kingdom. What will be the disposition? What will be the heart? What should they pray if they want to be kingdom citizens? If they want forgiveness, if they want to become a forgiver, if they want to come into God's kingdom, this really is a sinner's prayer. If you can pray with all genuous, God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Deliver us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the heart of the Christian. That's a sinner's prayer. Sinners pray that to God and they're transformed. Lest we think that Jesus is playing around with forgiveness, as if it's some sort of optional tag-on, sinners need forgiveness and sinners need to be forgiven, I would point you to Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. So just to tell you just how critical forgiveness is to the kingdom of God, it's not optional, it must be transformative, it must be a part of the equation. He's not just saying it here in connection with the Lord's prayer, He is doing that. But listen to what he also says later on in Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's just a mind-boggling number. That's in the millions of maybe billions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So he had a debt. Forgive us our debts. So just think of that in terms of an unpacking of, this, of the prayer. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Forgive our debts. He's essentially praying that part of the Lord's prayer. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is not very much at all, a couple hundred dollars, and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this, his fellow servant fade, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay his debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And the master summoned and he said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. You prayed in a sense the Lord's Prayer, right? You asked for forgiveness and I gave it to you. But then you forgot what the result is, right? The result of praying that prayer means that you have a totally different disposition towards others. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could, had paid all his debt. So also my father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. So again, like I said, this doesn't mean that if you struggle to forgive, that means you're not a Christian because forgiveness is hard. 
it's very hard. But if you're just resigned to not ever wanting to pursue forgiveness, then that shows a heart that has not yet prayed the Lord's Prayer, right? So an application, what are your prayer habits? Are your prayer habits changing you? Praying this Lord's Prayer in this way, this better how, this better why, this better what, changes us. The result of prayer is a changed us. Are your prayer habits changing you? You still hate sin, and you hate the sin that's done to you, but you really desire forgiveness more than you desire revenge. You really don't want evil to befall that person. There's a place for justice. I'm not saying that there's no place for justice. Forgiveness and justice go together. They're friends. But forgiveness, a greater compassion for sinners comes when we pray this prayer from the heart. A greater confidence in our sonship that we can forgive others comes from this prayer. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God, which is the spirit of the prayer, right? God, make things right. Your good rule, your good reign, bring your kingdom. May your will be done. I want sin to stop. I want justice to be done. But I'm but I want forgiveness. Do that through forgiveness. So in this prayer, we see the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're right. The first three positions, love the Lord your God. Love His will more than your own. Love His glory more than your own. Love your neighbor as yourself. You pray, give us our daily bread. You see the great commission in this passage as well. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's in the prayer. And you see the great, great prayers of Scripture that people pray, they all have these elements in them of praying for God, the hallowing of God's name, praying for His kingdom to come, praying for His will to be done, praying for our physical needs, praying for our spiritual condition, praying for a deliverance from evil. And so, as we come to the conclusion here of a better how, a better why, a better what, a better result transformed life. It's not the only result of prayer, but it seems to be the first one, the first indicator that the prayer is working, is that the people calling out for forgiveness become forgivers themselves. So what does your prayer life say about what you believe about God? Remember, the Gentiles believe in a God who's not personal, who needs to be badgered. He's like a vending machine. And if you push the right buttons, you get what you want. He's a genie. Do you pray like that? Or does your prayer sound like a child talking to his dad? What does your prayer habits say about what you believe about God? What do your prayer habits say about what you believe about yourself? Do you believe yourself to be a child of God who really can come to his Father? What you believe about prayer actually is and for and what it does really changes when you have the right view of God. Effective prayer is downstream from a right knowledge of God, a right relationship to God. He's omniscient, omnipotent Father. And so the question is, do you know God as Father like that? Because you can. We're born separated from God. We're born orphans. But Christ came and offers a kingdom where we can be adopted into His family. And this prayer gives you a good thing that you could pray if that's your desire. God, I want you to be my Father. I want to join your family of faith. I want to be part of the hour that gets to be part of your family. I want my life to go from being about me and my will to your will. I want your name to be hallowed. I don't want to make much of myself. I don't want to be great. I want you to be great. I want your rule and reign to be in my life. I want it to be you that provides for my needs. I want it to be 
you that forgives me. And God, give me the ability to forgive others. Set me free. Like Jesus is calling us to freedom. When you can forgive with the divine power that God gives, you really are free. Here's how the Gospel of John puts it at the beginning of his Gospel. The true life, which gives light, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive Jesus as their king, received God as their father, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born again, born into a new family, adopted. God chooses you to come and be a part of his family, and then he gives you the privilege of calling him you father, or calling him father. You get that privilege. And so, if that's true, then you can come to your daddy and just pray, right? It's not that you have to pray, it's that you get to. You just think about how busy Watiki would be if they said, no admission required. Everybody would be flocking there, right? No admission? I don't have to pay anything to get access to all of that? It would be packed. In a greater way, Jesus says access to God is available to you free of charge. I have paid the way with my own blood. You were not allowed to come into the presence of God, but because of what Christ has done, admission-free access to God. You don't need a bunch of fancy prayers. You don't need to get a bunch of things all right and in order. You don't have to say the right things. You can just come. Admission's paid. It's free. Why would we not pray every day when it's free access, no admission? Why would we not gather regularly with our brothers and sisters corporately to go, oh, there's a prayer meeting. I must be at the prayer meeting because I have unlimited access. The admission is paid and we can come and pray for God's will to be done, his kingdom to come, for our needs to be met, for forgiveness to pervade, for us to be delivered from evil, for us to be forgivers. And he will answer it. He will answer those prayers. He will answer those prayers through Christ. So turn to Christ in faith and then enjoy free access to God as a father in all things. Let's pray. God, thank you for this prayer. God, thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty of sin, to bring us into a right relationship to you, to transform us, not just to forgive us, but to transform us into agents of forgiveness. And Lord, help us to lean into that. Help us to really live into the freedom of declaring dependence on you and then living totally free. We no longer have to hold grudges. We no longer have to keep score. We no longer have to make everything right ourselves. We are just free. Free from our sins and free from the sins that have been committed against us. Lord, make us free. And we thank you that through this simple prayer, pray genuinely, not because it's magic words so much as because of the heart that's behind it and the themes that are uh, a part of it, God, that we can know you as Father, that we can draw near and we know that you will answer the Lord's Prayer. You will answer yes to those requests. You will bring your kingdom. Your will will be done. You will provide for us. You will bring us safely home. And, and so, Lord, help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.